The Boys of Tech with Edwin Herman and Brett King. And welcome to episode 91 of The Boys of Tech for Monday, the 8th of November, 2010. My name is Edwin Herman. I'm one of your hosts. The other is Brett King. Welcome along. Howdy. Brett, only what, three days ago we were celebrating Guy Fawkes? Indeed. Spectacular. Did you go see it? No, no, I didn't. Ah, how could you not take you're too little ones long to see $190,000 worth of bang. Well, you know, the thing is, it's a little late for my kids. You know, I've got a, what, four-month-old and a three-year-old. <laughs> That's irrelevant. I, I, was, I went and saw it from a friend's apartment on the waterfront, and we were looking after a three-year-old who was running around completely engrossed in the toys that had been provided until the fireworks went off and then it was all glued with a tiny face to the window. Well, you know, I did consider I did consider taking my older one up to the, the top of the hill and, and having a look, but in the end we were pretty tired. And But we heard it. In fact, you know what? She <laughs> says to me from, from, the, from the bedroom, she says, Dad, what's that noise? And she's never known fireworks before, you know. It's a oh, so kind of had to explain it to her. Should have taken it as oh, a well, you know. I'll show you some on YouTube. Would or have something. been an experience. <laughs> they were quite well done this year. Yeah, they they seem to go on for a while. Mm. All right, Brett. We're joined this week on the show by David Frampton. What is he? He's, he's an artist, but really now he's more of a computer programmer. Mm. Uh, I'll tell you what. Let let him tell the story. David, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks. So, David, now you're also in Wellington, I understand. Uh, that's right, yep. So um, all, all three uh, of us are doing the show live from Wellington, New Zealand. Great. <laughs> did, did you see the $190,000 worth of fireworks go off on the 5th of November? No, I did not. No, no but you were on holiday, weren't you? Um, I don't even know anymore. Um, <laughs> we've been away for six weeks and um, it's just been Sort of constant traveling. I think, no, we were back for the fireworks, but probably fast asleep. Oh, fair enough. Oh, yeah. When you come back from six weeks holiday, you, you, you need a holiday from your holiday. <laughs> oh, it was yeah. pretty hectic, yeah. We were, we were all over Europe and all sorts, so. Um, oh, yeah, wow. we kind of, kind of do need a holiday. Awesome. <laughs> oh, that's awesome, yeah. We could, you know what, we could do a whole show on just that, actually, on your trip. <laughs> but we won't, because, you know, all, all the tech people go, oh, you know. Yeah. <laughs> oh, no, they're talking about travel. Yeah, they didn't sign up for travel podcast. <laughs> so guys, stand by, don't worry, we're not going to talk about travel, but what we will talk about is the reason why David is here. Now David, you've got a, a company? Yeah, it's registered as Jungle Limited, but um, normally called Magic Jungle Software with a J for magic, and it's just a one-man band at the moment. Yeah, um, it's, you created a game back in, I think, what was it 2003 for the Mac platform called Chopper? It's, a, I think, a side-scrolling helicopter game where you go and rescue people? Yeah, well, that was Chopper, yes. Well, that was one of the first um, games that I'd created, and it was really when I was teaching myself how to, how to program, I actually entered, entered it into a competition for the Mac. And, yeah, it was quite popular, and people kind of, you know, got quite a number of downloads. Um, it was just free at the time. And from there, that basically got me a job working on sort of TV weather graphics. 
Oh wow! Um, so you, you, did you create some some of the weather graphics we would have seen on TV? Um, yeah, well, I certainly had a hand in it. Yeah, um, worked on some of the stuff that's on on um, you know TV three and TVNZ and, and stuff. So um, oh, that's I'll, cool. I'll never I will never think of the weather the same again. When I watched <laughs> the, the, the weather, I was like, I know who did those graphics, or at least who helped create some of those graphics. Yeah. <laughs> that's awesome. Yeah, no, it was actually a really enjoyable job, and it taught me a huge amount as well about sort of graphics and real time and and yeah, just the industry as well. So. Before you got into uh, computer programming, you, you were an artist, is that right? Or perhaps you still are. Yeah, it was sort of, I mean, at school I did a lot of art and then um, after leaving school I kind of carried it, carried it on and then eventually sort of left my retail work that I was doing and, and went basically full-time painting, you know, exhibiting in galleries and I wouldn't say making a living, you know, just getting by would have been more, more appropriate, <laughs> but yeah. No, it was it was relatively successful. I was starting to get uh, to the stage where I really could have made it, but um, uh, then I got sidetracked by programming. And, uh, yeah. Although that's starting to prove fairly lucrative, as I understand. You do you've done quite well because you took what Chopper and uh, in, I think two thousand eight and basically ported it to the iOS platform, right? Yeah, that's right. Um, I was I was working full time at the time, but um, I over about three months. And evenings and weekends, ported Chopper across the iPhone. Was that easy um, to do to port from from the OS ten to iOS? Well, it was a complete rewrite, but that was more because you know when I'd made Chopper originally, I had no idea how to program. You know, it was just a big mess, and so I really needed to recreate it to make it feasible and and do it in that amount of time. But as like as far as what I'd learnt from doing Mac software was just completely invaluable for um, doing the port to the iPhone. And I guess I also had all the graphics and I had all the level design and had, had a very solid idea of how the game was going to work on the iPhone. And so all that bit was already done for me. So that game did quite well, didn't it, in the App Store? How many, uh, how many, how many yeah. sales did you get on that one, on Chopper? Well, it's still selling um, quite well at the moment. Over a couple of large spikes early on, it's uh, got it's well over three hundred and fifty thousand now. Unbelievable! Three hundred and fifty thousand. You're a one man band. Yeah, that's just you <laughs> well, doing this, right? Yeah, I mean, it, you know, when I was making it, I started to get a feel for how uh, how big the iPhone platform was going to be. You know, I mean, there were already I don't know how many million iPhones out there, and they're all going to suddenly have the App Store available. And they're going to have credit cards wired up already to to go, and I thought started thinking about some of the numbers and kind of, yeah, it, it started to look pretty good. But even you know, I I just never imagined this you know doing this well. So yeah, pretty unbelievable. Upgrade. I mean, you can do the math. Say you know, three hundred fifty thousand sales times how much were you selling it for, or how much well, is it going for? The majority of those were at ninety nine cents. Hey, yeah. I'd be happy with that. Wouldn't you? <laughs> yeah. would, you would you be happy yeah. with that? <laughs> Oh, that's awesome. Now, the thing is, uh, more recently, you did a, a second version, Chopper 2, right? When did that go out? Uh, that was released um, end of July. Yeah, yeah. This year? Yep. End of July this year. And that's, so, you, there you've, you've done, what, 3D graphics? Yeah, it's, I mean, that was, again, a complete rewrite. I, I mean, it was just, a, <laughs> I mean, it took 16 months in the end to, from when I started working on it to the end. And was just, you know, it's like more than 10 times the amount of work. But I've, yeah, it's ended up with sort of 3D graphics and um, a whole new kind of physics engine and greater variety in, gra- in graphics and sounds and all new levels. And yeah. And how's, how well is it selling? Do you, are you happy with the sales? 
Yeah, I mean, <laughs> yeah, the, the first week or so was just incredible. I just, uh, you know, again, it just completely exceeded expectations. So, and it's, you know, it's eased off gradually since then, as you kind of expect after a big launch. But, you know, I'm still happy with it. And it's still definitely got plenty of things that I want to add to it as well. And I'm currently working on the Mac port of it, you know, coming back to the Mac again this time with Chopper 2. Oh, good. Okay, good. Because I'm going to buy that one. I, I don't have an <laughs> iPhone or an iPad, but I do have okay. a Mac and I'm going to buy that one because, <laughs> yeah, I'll buy that one. Let, let us know when you're, when you're done with the Mac one. Ma- yeah, Mac well, for that. Well, because Apple's, of course, now announced the Mac App Store and that's due to come out, I think they've said 19th of December, so late December. And my goal is to have it available for that. So it should be out by the end of the year. Oh, good one. All awesome. Right. Well, you've got, you've got a sale now already. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> You'll pre-order. Yeah, pre-order. That's, yeah, that's what we should do. You should take pre-orders. I mean, can we, we, should, we should do that through the show. We can, I'll tell you what, Brett, we, we, we could broke a, a deal, you know, to take some pre-orders through boysoftech.com. <laughs> no, no, can't do that. Anyway, so, so Chopper 2. Now, why why is it so popular, though? People just take to this game, and it's had great reviews. The unofficial Apple web blog uh, says, and I quote, probably one of the best games I've played at WWDC. Uh, slide to play says, Chopper 2 offers an experience that you aren't going to find elsewhere on the App Store. Why is this game so popular? Well, I think it sort of it came together really well. I think the the music and the the art and the kind of I don't know the, the accessibility of it and the and the kind of the level structure and how long it is and how long you have to sit down for between getting past it and you know I, th- I think it just all came together really well um, and I think just people respond really well to that um, and it it just uh, there's a lot of really small kind of puzzle games on this or there's a lot of kind of I don't know, like stuff from big houses that the big game houses that has, um, you know, it has its own style and thing going for it. But I think Chopper 2 is quite unique, perhaps because, you know, just coming from one man band, you know, I had complete, you know, control and, and basically created exactly how I wanted it. Mm. Um, and, and I think, yeah, people just responding to that. So I guess it's got a, a bit of an indie feel to it. Yeah. Yeah. And it had the, the name from the original Chopper and, um, it had like the, uh, I don't know if you've seen, but you can actually use an iPhone to control an iPad. Yeah, now yeah. I saw that. I was going to talk about that as well. So let's let's get on to that. You, you're you saying you can use an iPhone or an iPod Touch for that matter to mm. control the game wirelessly that displays on an iPad, right? Yep. Yep. So, <laughs> Sweet. That is so, awesome. Yeah. That is absolutely awesome. When I saw that, I, it just blew my mind. <laughs> Does that mean yeah. you can have dual displays, displays doing different things? Um, effectively, yes, although I don't really display much on the controller on the iPhone itself because you tend to kind of not be able to focus between the two. Mm. But I could, I could potentially. I mean, I show buttons and the, and the buttons change depending on what's going on. <laughs> That's cool. So just to get into your mind a little bit. Like See, that you, would be a reason to get an iPad. <laughs> <laughs> that would be, absolutely. Now you're sold, Brett. Now, look, David, just to get into your, to your brain a little bit, from the programming side, you know when you... I guess dreamt up or got this idea that you could use a an iPhone to control an iPad. How did you go about finding out how to code that? Like, did you Google stuff or hey, or did you just read some RTFM? <laughs> read the manual? What did you do? Well, yeah, I, I guess a mixture of that. I mean, I don't know. I kind of had a good idea of how I was going to go about it. You know, Apple's got some pretty good technologies for for getting that kind of thing working. 
So I just kind of sat down and did it. I don't know. So what about when you get stuck on things then? What what about other situations where you you don't, you know, you want to go down a path, you're not quite sure how to get there. There's a a few gaps along the way. How do you bridge those gaps? Do you just Google stuff? Um, yeah, forums I mean, or what? It's sort of yeah. There's you know googling and just checking over the documentation. I, I use Twitter quite a lot. I've got quite a big kind of community there to to bounce ideas off and and you know get feedback and stuff as well. And then you know just sleeping on it, and <laughs> taking a break and thinking about it. I have to ask you also the the trees in the game, like the cabbage mm. trees or whatever they are. Did are these tree real trees that you've taken photos of and stuck them in the game or? Uh, I've actually I downloaded a program that generate procedurally generates trees and then you can render out images of those trees. Oh, okay, <laughs> right, I see. Yeah, cool. yeah. So then I could basically render the trees from two different angles, map them onto polygons, and sort of create these three D trees. Unbelievable! That's awesome. <laughs> I, the thing, the that thing is that very I, awesome. The thing I don't understand is how can you do all this when you're self taught? How does that well, work? I don't know. Just you know. Perseverance. <laughs> say, just, yeah, I mean, I just love the challenges. I mean, I, I love finding out solutions to, the, to these problems. So that's really what, I mean, you know, this, uh, like, I mean, the, the wireless controller thing, that was one of the best days of the whole project because I had this kind of exciting new thing to try out. And, yeah, I mean, it only took a couple of days to get it all basically working. Yeah, it was just really, really fun because of the, the unknown and kind of the challenge of it. And you get to justify the purchase of an iPad because I got to test it, you know. <laughs> oh yeah, because <laughs> there's also the um, TV out layer to that as well. Because then once you once you're controlling the iPad, you can plug the iPad into a TV. Yeah, I saw that actually. TV. Yeah, there's a couple of YouTube clips that you can find. Uh, I don't know if they're done by yeah. you or other people, but uh, of you know people playing that the game on uh, well being displayed on a on a large screen TV. Mm. That's yeah. cool. So that, yeah. that's inherent. That's built in. That's something part of. That's part of the iPad, right? Part of the functionality of the iPad. Uh, well, an app has to actually support the TV out functionality. So oh, does it? Right. So you had to code something to. Yeah. Right. Okay. Mm. But now, so of course, now that I'm doing the Mac version, I'm, I want to try to get the iPhone to be able to control the Mac version as well. So. <laughs> sweet. <laughs> hey, can you do me a special version? Because I don't have an iPhone, but I want to be able to control externally. And, but I've got a webcam in my iMac, so can you do one? You know, where I hold my hands up and do sort of a, <laughs> a webcam. Well, that's. I mean, because I've done some webcam controlled stuff. I don't know if you've seen Fluid Tunes, but that that almost does exactly that. No, I can't say it wrong, really. Uses uh, webcam movements to browse through your iTunes music library. You wrote this? Yeah, yeah. That is cool. I gotta that's check that very out. Cool. I gotta check that out. In yes, fact, that's uh, fluid tunes. That is fluid tunes. It's free. It's just it's all kind of toy, really. Yeah, that's kind of cool. I like that. I think I'm. Is it available for the Mac? Yeah, yeah. It's just for the Mac. Yeah. I might have to download that and have a look. Good stuff, indeed. Absolutely. This is fantastic. So. This is kind of one of these Kiwi success stories that you don't really hear about until one newspaper or one news site sort of latches on and, and does a story about it. Mm. So all the while, you were sort of hiding away here in in New Zealand and kind of doing your thing, and no, no one really knew. Well, no <laughs> well, one knew. I mean, people bought your game, but people didn't know who was behind the game. Yeah. Makes you, you know, wonder just how many other little success stories about one-man show app developers are out there. Yeah. Well, there are, yeah. I mean, there's plenty of people sort of getting on and doing their their thing, for sure. Have you met a few through doing your project? Yeah, absolutely. And I I mean, all over the world as well. I mean, you know, the international community is probably just as large as people I'm sort of meeting nearby. But yeah, like I've met this guy called James who did um, an app called Ancient Frog. 
it's just a, a game for the iPhone and iPad as well that's um, done really well. And yeah, it looks really good. So, so you're based in Wellington, and I, I guess this is now your effectively de facto full time job. Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, I basically went full time as soon as as soon as the App Store came out. I was planning on doing it anyway. I'd been saving up to try to go full time, but my plan at that point was to do shareware. And so when the when the iPhone App Store came out, it was just perfect timing, and really suddenly I was able to it. yeah actually make money out of out of software. I mean, you can make money in shareware, but it's just you know it's not it's very difficult. Mm. Much more sporadic. Yeah, we uh, yeah. I mean, I think the, the big hits in shareware don't make as much as the big hits. Well, I don't know. I mean, I'm, I guess I'm generalizing, but I think that there's definitely a lot more money now in the, in the App Store than there ever was in shareware. Now, you know, just recently the New Zealand Herald did a story on the success of Chopper 2. Did they have other media picked up on this as well, or, or is it kind of just of interest here now because it's New Zealand? Um, well, it's, it, I mean, because Chopper 2 has been out since July, and they've certainly overseas, the tech press sort of picked up on it. It was, you know, obviously Tuau and Gizmodo and sort of a bunch of those sorts of sites took interest. Um, Touch Arcades kind of covered it along the way. So it certainly had quite a lot of interest. I think they actually, like, uh, what was it? NBC covered it. What about podcasts apart from us? Or are we the uh, first? I've, I have done a couple of podcasts. Yeah. I'm trying to think who they were. Oh, no, no. We can't mention <laughs> that. No, we can't, no, we can't say that. Excellent. All right. Well, uh, look, David, congratulations on, on your sales so far. That's absolutely fantastic. Thank you. So, David, what are you currently working on? Working on the Mac version of Chopper 2 at the moment, and I'm expecting that to sort of take about a month. And then after that, I've got kind of a number of things in the pipeline. I mean, I want to do a number of improvements on Chopper 2. I have another game that I'm not really going to go into just yet, but I've got an idea there. I know, Um, it's called Chopper 3. (laughs) Absolutely not. No? No, no, I've got Something else, okay. Chopper 3 is not planned at this point. (laughs) Yeah. I've spent quite a lot of time with Chopper in the past few years, so... Yeah. <laughs> you want to give it a rest. Yeah, yeah, it might be time to kind of try something else. Yeah, and no, I've got plen- plenty of ideas, and, and yeah, I'm just wanting to get into it, really. Okay, and where can people find you on the internet? What's the... Uh, we've got a site or a Twitter account or something you want to put forward on, on the podcast? Um, yeah, well, Twitter, um, I'm Magic Dave with a J. Magic with a J. Magic uh, Dave, so M-A-J-I-C Dave. Yep. Yep, and uh, yeah, just magicjungle.com. Magicjungle.com. Excellent. Well, I'll certainly be keeping an eye on that website because as soon as my Chopper 2 for Mac comes out, I'm buying it. That's excellent. excellent. In fact, I've just discovered a few other bits and pieces on that site that I have to check out. Absolutely. So, look, David, thank you very much for joining us on the show this week. No problem. Thanks for having me. No worries. And, uh, yeah, do keep in touch. Yeah, we'll do. All right. Bye now. Okay. Bye-bye. Brett, what do you reckon about that? You and I should go into iPhone development business. We so should. There is money to be made in it. There is. Good on him. He's, he's obviously done really well, and I, I like these little success stories. So do I. Nice, uh, warm, fuzzy Just feelings. For all of the, the, the geeks out there. It, it, it Chicken back going, you know, I could do something, make some money. Well, you could. Yeah. So get to it. Exactly. All you got to do is start doing. Exactly. So, Brett, what happened in the week in tech? Well, there was... Loads of things. Loads of things. Uh, something political will kick off with in Myanmar. Their internet was effectively severed. Their link to the internet was effectively severed 
because of a denial of service attack. Yeah. When I first saw the headline for this story in the paper, it was, uh, I thought some, you know, fishing troll had gone along and broken the cable. But no, <laughs> much more insidious. I know. And we see, the thing is, we, you know, we talked about this. We see more and more of this sort of stuff because it, yeah. it's, no one really knows why. No one's managed to figure out exactly why it's happened. But there are suggestions that this is something political. And, you know, the fact that, you know, their, what is it, their Ministry of Post and Telecommunications, which is the main conduit for internet traffic in and out of uh, Myanmar, they're the that ones that were targeted. So you'd think this is certainly something political. Yeah, yeah. It was definitely specific to their to their internet connection. It wasn't something, some company or anything inside. It was... Yeah, their ministry for posts and telecommunications. <laughs> but the sheer amount of traffic that they were bombarded with, that is pretty staggering. It was gigs of traffic, wasn't it? Gigabytes, yes. Humongous amounts. Oh, yeah. no, wait, gigabits. Well, gigabits. <laughs> Small B, not big B, gigabits. But still, huge amount, estimated, what, 10 to 15 gigabits of traffic? Massive amounts when you think of what one of the previous political DDoS attacks of Estonia back in 07 was only about 100 megabits. Well, 100 uh, meg per second. Myanmar, we're talking gigabits per second. So we're talking gigabits per second for Myanmar. Yes, gigabits per second, 10 to 15 gigabits per second of traffic to their post and telecommunication. That's huge. Imagine being set, you know what though, do you remember back in the, what was it, mid-90s? Every now and again, here in New Zealand, and I'm sure we weren't the only country to have this happen, uh, but mm-hmm. you know, back in the mid-90s, every now and again, our internet link would go down and the whole country effectively became a silo and there were effectively two internets, the world and New Zealand. Yeah. Do you I remember do that? that. I, the, yeah. yeah from, uh, used to, and sometimes it was the better part of a day that the, the, all of New Zealand was isolated. Well, it's back then we had, what, one, maybe two bits of wire that went between New Zealand and the rest of the world? Yeah, yeah. And (laughs) (laughs) it's crazy, I know. We had, I think at one point we had a, what was it, was it a 64 kilobit per second link or something? Mm. It was insane. (laughs) But hey, you know, it was kind of revolutionary at the time. It was like... Well, yeah, we were back right, you know, in the fledgling stages of it becoming a global internet. Well, it's certainly a sign of the times when we're seeing what we think are politically motivated DDoS attacks on, on the internet. It's just yeah, like well, you know, it's you've got to lean to that being the answer because, you know, it was just yesterday that the elections in Myanmar were held and there's been some controversy around the, the political process. censorship mm. and, yeah, and the process uh, in Myanmar so for it to that. Do with that. Yeah, exactly. So Questions it could are being very asked. well be. And, you know, we saw that um, reflected as well, as I mentioned when we were talking about Estonia in 07, that their DDoS attack occurred around their election time as well. So, is, you know... You've got to wonder. Yeah, got, absolutely. <laughs> these are situations where you've got some strong evidence there. There's no direct evidence. You can't make a conclusive statement but you get a strong inkling well yeah i have a feeling you're probably right i want to move on to the times and the sunday times newspaper they've just recently implemented a a subscription-based model where you have to uh, to, you know to read more than a certain amount you have to go and pay you have to subscribe to their service Mm -hmm. we're talking about the whole 
change and culture about paying for news yeah, on the internet. Yeah, we, we, we talked about it on several of our previous episodes we about did. their proposal to go subscription-based only. Yeah, now it's happening. And guess what? They've noticed that visits to their website has fallen by nearly 90%. Yeah. Well, hello. Huge drop-off. Yeah. But they're still calling it a success. They are. They are. They are they've actually announced figures for the number of subscribers. And they're talking about, you know, over 100,000 people have subscribed. And they seem fairly happy with that, don't they? They are. They do seem quite happy with their 100,000 subscribers, though their (laughs) unique visitors have fallen from 21 million per month to two and a half million-ish per month, (laughs) which is, as you said, a significant drop. It is. But, you know, the thing is, I I think this is what we're going to probably see, that a lot of the news providers, I think, will sit around the 100,000 subscriber mark and that's the model. That That's what it can support. That's what the market will be. And they will just scale down their operations to support that 100,000 uh, subscriber base. Mm-hmm. And they'll be happy with that. And uh, that's probably how it will go. And we'll all have to pay for news. Yeah. Uh, is it going to be able to support the, the quality that they were hoping for? Are they putting on a brave face and are still actually going to have to scale back their operations? Because well, I mean, of this that is the thing. Number. Yeah, I mean, they cut and based on, on their, the prices that they're they're putting out for. Because if you're a subscriber to their to their hard copy paper, you get an automatic subscription to their digital paper. And yeah, they've got different price ranges for different things. They've got day passes, you know, for a single issue for a pound or two pounds for a week, just under ten pounds for a, a month subscription. That's quite different to the the price that you would normally have paid for your Standard paper. So I wonder, yeah, it's still early days, still very, very early days to see how well this is going to go. But yeah, as you said, this could be the way of the future for these sorts of things. Well, if you think about it, this is probably the lowest number they'll get. I think they'll go up from there. And you know why I say that? Is because right now there are still a lot of sites where you can get free news from. Mm-hmm. So the people that choose to subscribe are doing so out of choice and they could mm-hmm. actually go somewhere else for free. Yep. So when, once you take into account the fact that a lot of the free sites will disappear, maybe not all of them, but say a lot of them do, a, a large chunk if not the majority do, then I think you'll find that more and more people will be subscribing simply out of necessity if nothing more. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Well, as you say, there, there might be some others who decide to switch this way, but I do not think we will ever see the death of online news for free well the thing is it, it you know to be honest it takes money to put together a site that delivers news yeah but with the increasing growth of community um enterprises happening on the internet i wouldn't surprise me if we saw something that a a group of people decided to band together and provide news purely for the hell of Providing news and but where would they doing get the stories from? Who, where, where would you get that? Because someone's got to do the, the research and the interviews and, mm-hmm. and so on. So, you know, if, if everyone, I don't know, it's kind of hard to fathom, I think. It is. Interesting times. It is indeed. Oh, nice pun there. Interesting times. <laughs> <laughs> We're just talking about the times. All right, Brett, Flash. Oh, a few Apple stories now. Flash is coming to the iPhone and iPad 
kind of. Oh, I know. That's the, that's the, the, it's the headlines so, out there. It's not coming at all. No, it's not. But those are the not he- at all. No, but the headlines are out there. The reason the headlines are out there saying that is because what it is is that there's a piece of software called Skyfire, and what it actually does is it transcodes Flash video and turns it into HTML5 video. Mm. And that's going to so, be available for the iPhone and iPad. Yeah, so it's a little, well, how would you call it? It's a, a plugin or a widget that works with Safari on the, the iPad the, or the iPhone. And it intercepts the calls to Adobe Flash encoded video content, swings it by the Skyfire servers. The Skyfire servers re-render that out as, yeah, transcode it out as HTML5 video, and then present that to you within your Safari browser on your iPhone or your iPad. Hmm. So it's kind of like a, a workaround. And the thing about this story is that this is the first type of application like this to get approved through the Apple Store. Well, yeah, because it has only been able to come about because of the easing of restrictions that Apple recently did on its development for App Store apps. And because of the how closely this Skyfire plugin, I guess you could say, works with how closely it works with Safari, it's had to go through a far more rigorous process than your regular. Yeah, I saw that. They, yeah, they said that, didn't they? That, that yeah, Apple really because it, it, it looks, works with yeah. Safari. <laughs> Apple was a little more interested in how it was going to do things. But they seem um, happy with it now, don't they? So, yeah. yeah. So, so you know, it, I think you know, it seems like. I don't know, but I think Steve Jobs kind of has a point in that Flash is a bit buggy, but more importantly, it's it's pretty insecure, really. Well, yeah, yeah. But, but I think, I don't know. These are the, the pros and cons of being able to develop once for cross-platform compatibility instead of having to develop multiple individual times or, you know, uh, having to send off stuff to be ported to a different operating system. These are the, we've talked about it many, many times, so I won't bore our listeners again with my rant about the pros and cons of cross-compatibility and the trade-offs of it. But this is a brilliant thing. Yeah, I think this Skyfire is, is great, being able to make the Adobe Flash encoded video able to be viewed on iPhones and iPads will open up a lot of those videos which are not available in any other format online. The thing is, talking talking about missed opportunities, you, you'd think Apple would have done this themselves right at the get-go. Yeah, but Apple really, really doesn't like Flash. <laughs> yeah, I know, but... That's what I get. They, they, they dislike it so much they don't even want to make something which makes it... Oh, I see. <laughs> yeah. ...to make it work. I wouldn't touch it with a barge pole. Exactly. <laughs> but we have to say that this Skyfire thing does only work with Flash video, videos that have been encoded in Flash. Uh, it doesn't work with Flash apps or... No, you know, no, it's not really... It's not Flash, Flash at all, is it? content that a Flash website would, mm. would provide to you. So it doesn't render any of that. It just does the the video content. I am going to give them good kudos for their privacy policy because it does reroute those Adobe Flash video stuff content to their own servers to do the transcoding before it then routes it back to your application. It is kind of that man in the middle hijacking stuff from the website that you're looking at. 
and sending it around. So I, you know, I, I fully support their their privacy policy. How they're out there saying that they are consumer based, they are a consumer focused organization, and so they're putting their privacy policy up there, being we are about the consumer is not about advertising. So we don't store any of that information that we don't uh, aren't required by law to have to have to maintain, and anything that goes to any of those sort of banking sites is completely stopped. It doesn't get rerouted anywhere. It will. Well, how does it know? I guess it must have a list. It integrates with Safari, so it must be able to find out information about the the website that it's getting stuff from or looking at and decide whether or not it will or will not take information from that. It's kind of a workaround app, isn't it? That, that's really what it is. It is. It, is, workaround it plugin. is a workaround app for the inability of the you know, iOS to view Flash. <laughs> it is a workaround. But it's brilliant that it's actually now available. <laughs> it's there as a workaround. It's great. Well, speaking of workarounds, someone needs to find one for the iPhone in Europe. <laughs> Did you see the story there where it gave yes. them, it got mixed up with, with the daylight savings, I think, and the alarms. When people set their alarms, <laughs> yes. they went off an hour later. <laughs> yep. Oh, daylight savings time. Hasn't it been such a hassle over the last couple of years with different countries around the world deciding, you know what, let's change when we stew our daylight savings. <laughs> and it's not a little change. There are so many things that rely on daylight savings and so many things that refer to daylight savings. So it's, this sort of stuff is just bound to happen. What I find most funny about it is the fact that it happened to Europe and it was Apple's iPhone that did the muck-up. <laughs> yes, I suspect the offices in, in Europe were a little empty in the morning. Oh, I, I loved one Twitter comment, which was, a whole hour of peace and quiet in the office this morning without any iPhone users, courtesy of Apple. <laughs> <laughs> Don't you love these bugs? Oh, yeah. You get them constantly. You cast your mind back to the... New Zealand daylight savings time change and the little glitches that came up with um, Windows. So, yeah, and the Mac is, and in fact, tell you what, the worst one was on the Mac because Apple didn't release a, an update for New Zealand. True, true. They, so, they didn't bother. They said they weren't going to. You know, <laughs> Apple's, for a while. Apple has a real issue with daylight savings. It appears. <laughs> it seems to. I don't yeah. believe it. Maybe they will not support it on the iPhone. <laughs> Flash not supported. Daylight savings not supported. But this will be in a little fine print at the bottom. Each sold separately. <laughs> anyway. All right, now still on the iPhone, uh, one last story there. I can see there's a class, or what could be a class action lawsuit. At the moment, there's a woman who is suing Apple because she claims that Apple knew that the iOS 4, that's the you know version 4 of the operating system for for the iPhone, would effectively render her iPhone 3GS almost useless. Yeah. And it's true, there are performance issues. Yeah, yeah, well, the we know amount, that. Yeah, on, the, on the, the 3GS. that came up on the internet after iOS 4 was pushed out to 3G and 3GS handsets. And the absolutely undeniable performance issues and slowness you could not deny and <laughs> you couldn't say oh that's a feature uh, <laughs> there was absolutely no way of glossing over it it was shockingly bad and once again it, it's just like what we were talking about before the huge ddos on a country that is about to have an election is that 
politically motivated. Here it is, a new product is coming out and the company releases an update which makes all of their older product work worse so that people will want to buy their new product. It's that same kind of linking different things together, but you've got no conclusive evidence that any of these things go hand in hand, but you get that kind of vibe from them. Not necessarily true whatsoever. Statistically, you could never base anything on those, but it could go either way as to which way you want to believe it goes. (laughs) It's going to be interesting to see how far this actually gets through the courts, whether or not it does become a class action lawsuit. Well, one of the things that she points out in her lawsuit, and this is actually fair enough, Apple doesn't give you any method of downgrading back to iOS 3. Yeah. And this is the thing, they don't let you mm. do it. You can do it if you hack your way around it and effectively void the warranty because you're not doing it through the proper channels. Yeah, but yeah. But this, that kind of forms part of her lawsuit. And you know what oh, I think? exactly. Let me, let me say my prediction. Here's what I think will happen. I think Apple will simply release a method of downgrading to iOS 3. Mm-hmm. And that will be the end of that. And the lawsuit well, won't. Well, I think it could potentially have a much wider impact than just that. This sort of thing would set all kinds of precedents for other manufacturers who release firmware upgrades with the inability to downgrade the firmware. So we're talking, you know, the, the Sony PlayStation. Oh yeah, we talked about that the on the podcast. You can't, yeah. yeah, you can't, you can't down- downgrade the, mm. you can't downgrade the firmware from the PlayStation 3 without going through the darker hat channels. If this comes out that you then have to, you know, if you produce a product and you produce an update to it, you either have to allow the person to downgrade the firmware on it uh, to a, a, you know, an earlier version that works, or perhaps they will bring in tighter regulations about quality control or, or you know, patches which make it work again. But I think the, the, the only way to really mitigate that performance hit is to allow for a downgrade and them coming up with anything like that through the courts is going to really have an impact a ripple on effect to a lot of companies that produce hardware with um, firmware updates that they push out which you can't revert to i don't think that apple will be forced to do it i just think that they will do it as a as a way of scooting around the lawsuit of, mm. you know, making it so that it doesn't go ahead either that or the lawsuit will come to absolutely nothing as it gets bogged down and the the, the, you know, the, the black hole of the, the um, courts. Well, it comes down really to, to what she's claiming, and that is that Apple knew it would brick it, effectively. Mm. The thing is, it depends. How, how do you define uh, a device that's been bricked? I mean, how slow is something before you call it a brick? Uh, well, it's how slow before it becomes unusable. That's what they're talking about. They're not talking about it, it physically like the other ones where, you know, if you brick the phone, you can't do a damn thing on it. You, you can, you know, attempt to turn it on and it brings up one of their nice little I'm broken logos. Oh, yeah, no, no, it still works, doesn't it? Yeah, it still worked. The iOS 4 still worked. It was just such a, you know, such a noticeable slowdown, such a, a buggy performance that comparing it to its previous state with its previous version of the iOS is basically saying I've downgraded by upgrading. You've pushed out and forced me to have an inferior product than what I had previously. That's what they're, they, they're saying in this. And if Apple knew that this was going to go out, then, yeah, they've got some 
hard questions to answer there. Uh, the thing is, whenever you push, it was so widespread. So widespread were the performance issues from iOS 4 update on 3G and 3GS phones that how could it have missed QA? How could it have gotten out of QA that they let this update go out and did not notice that it completely, you know, that it really had issues on 3G and 3GS? Yeah, but any upgrade is always going to make an older piece of hardware go slower. Remember with Vista? Now, I know Microsoft don't make the hardware, but remember when, when you had Vista, right? You, well, yeah, your computers were sluggish. It's different. It's quite different because when you're producing an operating system for a computer and those sorts of things where you don't have any control over the hardware, you are constantly putting out the requirements. These are the hardware requirements for this to work okay. These are the hardware requirements for this to work well. These are the hardware requirements for this. This is a firmware update that was went out for hardware which they created and they knew intimately. So I guess it'll come down to whether Apple says, uh, oh, it's, it's acceptable. This, it is slower, but it's acceptable. And that's what it'll come down to. Is, is it acceptable? Oh, I don't know. No, it's never acceptable to, get, to downgrade the performance of a device which worked perfectly. But it always will. You always downgrade when you upgrade your software. Because it's more taxing in, in general, I'm speaking. Not necessarily. It doesn't need to. If they're going to introduce features in an OS that they need to push out to their phones and they know that it's going to downgrade performance by putting these features onto this older hardware, then they should not put those features onto the older hardware. Because if it downgrades the performance across the board, because this is what we're talking about here, it was downgrading the performance of the phone. It's not that the new feature of the phone performs slowly. Yeah, I know the whole the whole the phone, phone yeah. performed yeah. slowly with this update. It was a a full system wide thing. So yeah, there's a complete difference there. Well, you know, Apple's not the only one people are annoyed with. Developers are annoyed with Microsoft because Silverlight is kind of being given a bit of a back seat in favor of HTML5. And of course, a lot of developers have invested time and money into Silverlight technology. Yeah, yeah. It was always, I was always very touch and go with Silverlight because, you know, well, when it was first came out, it was like mm. this, it's the, the new replacement to Flash, it's going to be better, it's going to be blah, 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 blah. But then the, in, the, the web uh, and internet development really switched from those standalone sort of platforms to trying to go to more cross-platform standards-based HTML5 and other web standards development things. And... So Microsoft has seen that path. And so they've yeah, kind of shifted their development away from Silverlight and turned their attention to embracing HTML5 and the, the generic sort of web standards. I'm not surprised that Silverlight never really made it big. That I kind of would always I put it this way. The way I saw it is that it would never beat Flash. Mm, and if things they came, and things really? have, Yeah, exactly. And if things moved away from from proprietary technology, well, then it would it would lose, you know, by default simply because you move to yeah, HTML5, yeah. which is what's happening. But what yeah. I am surprised about is that Microsoft is, in fact, intent on moving to to standards because, and I, I know they have been, but it it is still surprising because mm. it shows a complete turnaround in the, yeah. in the sort of philosophy of the but company. They're not dropping it. No, they're, they're not, not dropping, dropping it. it. Right. They're, they're still saying that it, it's still a core feature because it does provide something with web standards, which HTML5, those sorts of things, cannot. 
and Silverlight does still provide a web integration on a, you know many different devices to you know the the back office, the office suite, and all of the other Microsoft products, Microsoft Internet, and Microsoft Online products. So, and the only way to really, you know, integrate for those, you need Silverlight. So they're not going to drop it because of the technologies it does offer. But as a sort of general technology for developing applications and things on the web, they are shifting more towards those standards. Well, some developers have said they're betrayed, disappointed, and demoralized. Mm, mm. Oh, I can kind of understand it, but I mean, I can understand it too. In it's, a way, because um, they they are being held back. It's like they've got no firm statement on anything about the next generation of Silverlight. They've just got vague things. If you know, within the, the the coming months, we're going to announce something about our next the the next iteration of Silverlight. They've got nothing really firm to go on for that. So they're sitting there in that kind of middle ground going, well, do we keep developing for Silverlight? Because you said at some point we're going to have a next generation of Silverlight. Or do we switch away from it if we're not developing something which integrates with core Office or Microsoft products and instead start developing stuff through the web standards, through HTML5, through, or, you know, (laughs) switch back to Flash. This is probably why David didn't do Chopper 2 for Silverlight. He, He knew this. (laughs) (laughs) well it sounds like he's in your camp there he's developed it originally for the mac and himself uses mac and likes macs and knows how to program and worked out you know learned how to program and do all those sorts of things on the macintosh so he's sticking to the 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 platform that he knows and loves yeah i think that's what it is isn't it i think there's there's absolutely nothing wrong with that no true (laughs) all righty so moving (laughs) thanks i feel better now So, moving on. I don't know, you know, I'm not against you because you like a Mac and I, I, I have a Microsoft PC. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not like going because you. you're locked into your, your hardware <laughs> and, and I have, hey, uh, you know, hey, hey. dozens of different companies making different bits that I can purchase from. I'm not, you know, saying anything. <laughs> oh, locked in. Here we go. Here we go. I'm going to skirt around the debate and go straight to the next story. I got out my big spoon there so I could stir some. <laughs> I can see that. I can see that. I'm, I'm trying not to bite. So I'm going to move on to the next story and talk about some research that's happening to tell people apart from bots based on keystrokes, patterns mm-hmm. that people do. So you know when you're typing something in like a password, the pattern, the way you type things in is very different to the way, say, a, a robot, a, a computer program would simulate keystrokes. Mm. And there's some interesting research being done on that. And I thought that's an interesting angle to take. Yeah. Oh, the coolest part was, you know, the, the realisation that the way that you type, the way that you hit the keys, use your keyboard, can be as unique to you as the way that you write. <laughs> yeah, I thought yeah, that exactly. was really cool. Yeah. That you could tell. You have a kind um, of a signature yeah, style. A signature yeah, style. You, could, you could tell different people apart based on the way that they typed, based on their, their yeah, that. I thought that was cool. I thought that was really cool. Uh, it is. It's, it's a very interesting... I, I don't know what And I love the acronym they use for it too. Their authentication framework. It's Tuba. Telling human and bot apart. Tuba. <laughs> <laughs> so this research is a result of a combined effort from an assistant professor of computer science at Virginia Tech and a former student uh, who's now at Stanford. Mm. Good stuff. It's very cool. Ah. I love these sorts of innovations. <laughs> so, but, so soon we're going to have biometrics on how we type. 
Yeah, yeah. But you wonder how easy it is to mimic other people's typing and just how different it is. Can you just kind of, you know, generally tell that it's probably one of these people if they're typing in this way and it's one of those people if they're typing differently? Or is it really unique? Uh, that's That's got me really intrigued on this. And the fact that, you know, these online bots, these internet bots, which have been, because this whole thing was to, you know, get away from malware and Trojans and things which hack your identity and insert unwanted keystroke sequences and pretend, try to pretend to be people. And they don't do it just by randomly inserting hundreds of keys or, you know, a dozen keys in a very short amount of time like a computer could. They do take from a pool of kind of patterns that people type in and just kind of use those is what the, the, the bots do. They don't just spam out keys. They themselves have been programmed to attempt to mimic the, the patterns that a person would do. And so this telling human and bot apart, this tuba framework, is more about keying those down to more individuals and small groups so that you know that the bot, it's a bot currently doing something because it's completely different to the way that that person who sits at that computer would type those things in. So it's absolutely amazing stuff. Really cool. Really cool. I too have the same question, actually, that you posed earlier. How accurate is it? How, how much, how certain can we be that that person is indeed that person based on the, mm. on the keyboard biometrics? Yeah. And the, the other questions that they were posing about using this model, this framework, to tell if somebody is using the computer in a way that is different to the way that the computer is normally used. If you're typing in a way which is not normal, for you. So for instance, if you were typing in a, a manner which showed that you were over agitated or perhaps under duress or doing those sorts of things, <laughs> the potential for this is completely mind boggling, but it really does get down to what you were saying. How accurate is its differentiation? How unique are the ways that we use the computers? Can those keystroke dynamics really be a robust method of determining that you are who you are sitting at that computer and you are not a, you know, a, um, a bot uh, pretending to be you or a bot inserting extra stuff while you're typing and so you can tell the difference. It's <laughs> really cool. Oh, it is totally cool. And, you know, I actually look forward to seeing how this research will actually be used in products, you know, in the future in preventing malware and identity theft and things like that. Mm. All right. Well, Brett, that concludes the international section of the podcast. So how about we take our customary break and put that little musical interlude in. And when we come back, we'll talk about a couple of New Zealand stories. How does that sound? Sounds like a plan, Ed. All righty, let's do it. Welcome back, everyone. Now, Google has been found in significant breach of UK data protection laws. And you know what's interesting about this story is that this is a complete about phase from the original finding. Exactly. They had originally ruled that no breach had occurred. Exactly what happened in New Zealand when the New Zealand Commission decided that Google had done nothing wrong, had breached no privacy laws there. But the UK has made this about face, have gone back and said, wait a minute, maybe they have. 
because they've had a look at what the you know has been found in Canada and Canada's ruling that there has been a breach. Germany, Germany's ruling that there has been a breach. And so we could see that ripple on effect to New Zealand having another look at it and New Zealand seeing whether or not, wait a minute, maybe there was a breach. Well, they could. And if they do look at this here again and, and find that there is a case to answer to, I mean, could that mean that I guess Google gets prosecuted? It could mean, but I think it's more likely to have a similar effect as to what they're, they're doing in the UK, where they're not going to, you know, Google, they're not going to punish Google. They're not going to fine Google. They're going to, to audit the Google's data protection practices, the way that Google collects and does those sorts of things in the UK. So we sort of could see a, a similar sort of thing happening in New Zealand. Uh, it's possible. Or we could see them be prosecuted if they do have a, a further look. They do go and audit the, the data that was there and audit the practices and decide, wait a minute, no, that was wrong. So we are going to slap you on the wrist for this. Well, I guess that will be something for the courts to to decide here if that happens. Mm. And from one court matter to another, this is an interesting story, which I, I was rather surprised about. Now, Matthew Fraser was recently found guilty of fraud. He's a computer hacker. He performed mm. the fraud by basically installing a piece of malware on some public internet terminals and cafes in Hastings and Napier. And so he, it was the malware's basically, it was a keylogger, right? And it was recording the keystrokes. He then used those credentials that the software had captured to log on to the banking sites as those other people get into their accounts and wire money across to his account. Now, the thing about this is that he only got 200 hours community service. Are you surprised? I'm completely surprised. Because he's still, we're talking eight and a half thousand dollars. Eight and a half thousand dollars. It may not sound much in, you know, in regards to a lot of the other stories we've talked about with this sort of internet fraud. But still, 200 hours community service and repaying the money, that's really just a slap on the wrist. Yeah, I thought it was a bit light. I mean, okay, he's not going to go to jail for 10 years or anything like that. But no, no. I thought I was expecting a six month or, you know, three to six months in jail or something. Mm hmm. I don't know. It just seemed quite light, as you say. Yeah, there must have been extenuating circumstances for the the judge to have been that lenient. Well, it wasn't his first foray into computer crime. He's he's been doing similar things before. So you think that that would have compounded it. Especially with the three strikes thing that the government's trying to put in. But anyway. (laughs) Maybe this doesn't come under that three strikes. Well, yeah, actually, I don't think it does because it's minor. But uh, apparently it's to fuel a drug habit. Yeah. yeah, so, you know, they get desperate once you're addicted to to the hard stuff, you know. I mean, you do anything to get the money to, to feed that habit, eh? And that, that's what's Yeah, happening. yeah, I, you should see me if I don't get my coffee. <laughs> the coffee, yeah. Hey, you're, you're not talking about Starbucks, are you? You're talking about real coffee. I'm talking about real coffee. Did oh. have to put up with a, a Starbucks yesterday, though. Did you? It was all that was available. Why do people moan about Starbucks coffee anyway? What's with that? Well... Isn't, is it really my main coffee, moan about it, it is, my is, main moan about it is more the oh, it's the temperature they put it out at is it too hot they, is it burn, are they burning they, the coffee yeah they do t- have a tendency I have noticed to produce a scalding hot coffee and that can quite often burn your coffee beans and so you end up with something which tastes not quite nice yeah i'm not a coffee drinker but i know that you know if you have it too hot it's uh you you do and you get that awful sort of back taste to it Mm. but uh, i'll admit that the one i had yesterday was actually not too bad 
All right. Where'd you get that one? Uh, Johnsonville. Johnsonville. Okay. So, sorry? Johnsonville of all places. Right. So, Starbucks Johnsonville is, is okay, according to Brett. Yep. All right. But there are better places, right? Yes. Cafe Lafari, Espressoholic, Plum, Matterhorn. Okay. So, if you're from Wellington, these are the take note. <laughs> if you're from Wellington and you walk down Cuba Street, you will be okay for coffee. Are they all pretty good on you? So I wouldn't know they drink coffee. They are all pretty good. They're all pretty good. I do have my favourite places, but that's more not just because of the coffee. That's atmosphere and brilliant staff and great food. Well, Love Espressoholic. That's, that is my local. That is my favourite place. Well, I don't drink coffee, but let me say this. I have found that there's a huge variance in the quality of a chai latte. There mm. are some really, really bad chai lattes from the bland to the sickly sweet. And yeah. It's, it's in terms of places that make that perfect chai latte that's, you know, right in the middle, it's not too sweet, not too bland, there's few and far between. Mm. It is, a, yeah, just, that one comes down a lot more to the, the brand of the, the, the chai that they're, you know, the chai syrup or how they're doing it. A lot of interesting variants in that one. Probably <laughs> more so in coffee, actually, when I come to think of it with the types of beans and everything else. Well, it's yeah, there probably the is, yeah, actually, It's whether or not they put in too much syrup. <laughs> yeah, you're probably right. Well, Brett, I think I'm going to go get myself a chai latte. I'll let you go get your uh, your morning coffee. Mm. And uh, I guess we'll do the show again next week. Indeed. Okay, well, that's episode 91. Thank you very much, Brett, for co-hosting the show with me. You're a wonderful co-host. Always a pleasure, Ed. And wasn't it great chatting to David Frampton earlier yeah, It on? was. It's always good to chat to uh, a proper geek, making good. Yeah. Using his powers for good and not for evil. Yeah. Well... We don't know what his third game is yet. True. Yeah, true. so hold that thought, you know. It could be, I don't know, <laughs> Taliban first-person shooter. <laughs> <laughs> Doesn't sound like the kind of guy who would come out with that game. <laughs> no, no. But look, I'm, you know, I mean this. I, I definitely will buy that uh, chopper for the Mac, that's for sure. So if you want to check out his software or visit his site, get in touch with him, magicjungle.com, magic with a J. And that's uh, David Frampton. So that was great. All right. Thank you very much to the audience listening to us. Without the audience, we wouldn't have a show. This was episode 91. It's been a pleasure. Thank you very much. See you next week. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.